Does Christianity work? Many people may ask that question today, or many people do ask that question today. Uh, does Christianity really work to change lives? I mean, you look at the world, and you have all these people that purport to be Christians, claim to be Christians, that their lives are a mess, things aren't going well for them. Uh, so Christianity must not work, some might say. Is it just a vague notion, this idea of Christianity? Some might ask the question, can it work for me? Can it save my marriage? Can I make my life better? Can it give me peace? The answer to these questions is yes. Christianity does work when it is more than just a casual saying. Christianity works when we do the things that the Bible teaches us. Christianity works when we try to live by the tenets that we find in the Bible. And so many people claim to be Christians, but their lives aren't changed because they haven't changed their lives. Those who know them form a perception about Christianity. That's a negative perception. But it can be powerful when we let it work. This morning I want us to think about this idea of Christianity working in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. As we look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, I want us to think about Paul's vision of transformation. I want us to think about Christianity as a religion of doing. Now I want us to think this morning about how it can work for you. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Let's begin reading a few of these <coughs> verses. Excuse me. Uh, and think about the vision that Paul has of the transformation that ought to occur in our lives. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived, in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of our mind, uh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By cra uh, grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works." which before God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. As we look at this passage, the first thing uh, that we want to notice is this language of, of where we all were. He says we were dead in our trespasses and, and sins. And the imagery here in the Greek language is the idea of, uh, of slipping or falling and being seriously injured, being seriously hurt, uh, being in a grave situation. Uh, and, and so that's how we lived. And we lived in conformity with several different things. 
as we walk in the course of this world. First of all, uh, we did live in this age or, the, or this world and walk in the course of this world. In other words, we did what the world does. Now think about that for a second. If you don't know any better about Christianity, if you don't know anything better uh, about God, you're going to do the things that the world does because the world is going to teach you those things. And so that's how we walk. Paul says that's how we walk. We walk according to what the world does. And so the world says this is fine, that's what we went out and did. And then the world does tell us, doesn't it? Doesn't the world teach us today? Hey, whatever you want to do, go do. Whatever makes you feel good, go do it. It seems the only caveat that the world lives by today is just make sure it's consensual. Make sure that everyone that's involved is, is fine with it. That's the only thing. Don't hurt anybody else. Live and let live. That's kind of the mantra of the world today. And so we're, we have a whole generation of folks that are brought up conforming to this world, doing what the world does. And the world basically just does what the world wants to do. What pleases me? What, what makes me happy? Paul also talks here about the ruler of, of, the, of the world, the prince of the air. Notice that in verse 2. Uh, we don't really stop to think sometimes about this world belonging to Satan, but it does. Satan has deceived the world into thinking all these things are fine. And, and so that's how we go about living our lives. That's how the world goes about living their lives. And then finally, Paul also mentions here the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Have you ever had sons of disobedience? Wouldn't it be great to have sons of disobedience? Sounds like a, a, a Netflix series, doesn't it? The sons of disobedience. You know, uh, we're disobeying God. And we just talked about the fact, well, what if you didn't grow up in a Christian family or whatever, and you didn't have the idea of God in your life, and, and so you just walk by the world? But everyone is a son of disobedience until they become in a relationship with God. And the reason that's true is because society from Adam and Eve on, and then they, everyone blew it, right? So then you had Noah and his family on, started moving further and further away from God. We were always tied to God, folks. We always were God's creation. Our lineage always goes back to a godly person. But at some point along the line, People forgot God. People moved away from God. And therefore, we were children. We were sons of disobedience. And as a result of that, uh, we face the wrath of God as the sons of disobedience. That's the fate that we have waiting for us. And so Paul says, look, this is how we live. We live just like the rest of the sons of disobedience, right? Doing whatever we wanted to do, not following what God wanted us to do. This idea of conformity according... Uh, or according to uh, Satan, or according to the world, uh, says our lives were once in step with the desires of the ruler of the power of the air. Think about these terms. John chapter 12, verse 31. John chapter 16, verse 11, both refer to Satan as the ruler uh, of this world. Acts chapter 26, verse 18, uh, talks about the dominion of Satan. And then in Colossians chapter 1, and verse 13, Paul talks about the dominion of darkness. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9 refers to Satan with all power. And Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 12, and Revelation chapter 20, verse 2, refer to devil or evil forces that are working 
in this world. We don't stop to think about how Satan works, but the standards of this world are all defined by Satan. I don't think any one of us <coughs> would consider ourselves worshipers of Satan. I know very few people that would consider themselves to be worshipers of Satan or followers of Satan. But you see, that's how Satan deceives us. He, he deceives us uh, by uh, telling us it's okay to do your own thing. It, it's okay to do things that, that please yourself. It, it, it's okay to uh, do whatever you need to do to get, to get by. As long as you don't hurt somebody else, it's okay. And of course, only in our culture, in, in Western culture, I mean, there are many cultures where even if it does hurt somebody else, that's just fine. You know, survival of the fittest. And Satan has enticed the world into thinking that's okay. And so even if we don't tell ourselves, I'm a Satanist, we're following his standards when we follow the standards of doing whatever pleases self. Have you ever thought back to Eve in the garden? Satan tempts her with uh, the idea of, hey, eat this fruit. And she saw that it was good to look at. It was good on the eyes. It, it, it was good. It tasted good. Uh, and it was good to make one wise. And that's really what she wanted. She wanted to be wise like God. Satan tempted her with doing what is pleasing self. And he's done the same thing to you and me and every other person from, from then on. But none of us would tell ourselves, hey, I follow Satan, but that's exactly what we're doing. And, and so this is where we were at. Paul says, among them, we all too walk. Notice that in verse 3. And now Paul it, it flips things around because uh, the Jewish folks there in Ephesus might have been thinking, well, Paul's really letting those Gentiles have it. They didn't know anything about God, and now he's just really letting them have it. But Paul says, oh, no, 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 no. Guess what, Jewish guys, just like me, Paul says. We, too, all formerly walked in them. And you think back to the history of Israel, you think, yeah, that's certainly true. There were plenty of times in the history of Israel uh, that the people of Israel forgot all about God. And so we th see this phrase, he says, among them we, too, all walked. And a lot of what Paul's going to talk about here in, in Ephesians, especially chapter 2, is this Jew-Gentile controversy uh, of the fact that the Jews thought they had it all put together. They were the, the, the ones that had the, the covenants of, of, of Moses. They're the ones that God made the covenant with Abraham. They had it all together. They were the good ones. And Paul's going to go on later on in this chapter and say, oh, no, Christ did away with all those things when Jesus nailed them to the cross and made us all one group. But you see, there was the struggle between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians and what they had to follow. And Paul says, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew. Guess what? You are in the same boat because you still followed your own fleshly desires and lusts. Paul says, we, we too. He puts himself in that same category. And then he tells us what we all did. Look at this in verse 3. Among them, we all too formerly lived in the lust of our flesh. Now, we, we think we know what that means. But again, if you've heard me speak on this before, you know uh, the idea of lust just means a deep, passionate desire, right? So anything that's a deep, passionate desire to our flesh, but he doesn't leave it there. He says, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. So the things that I can feel and touch, the things that I can grasp with my five senses, but also the things that I can think of. Things that I can think of. 
Don't you know there are some demented people in this world? But guess what? There are some thoughts, some ideas that I might have in my mind that I'm certainly glad nobody else might know about, even as a Christian. Sometimes I'm tempted by those things. And Paul says the way that we used to live is we gave in to those things. We indulged in That's that idea of indulging. And as soon as we indulged those things, we fell into Satan's trap. We were following the things that Satan wanted to do. Hey, or that Satan told us that we could do. Anything that, that pleases you, anything that you think you, you ought to have or go after, whatever, any of those things, just go do them. And we indulge those things. And so the result of that for us was that we ought to have been, by nature, children of wrath, even as the rest. The consequence was that we were children of wrath. We were going to face God's wrath. The idea here is of rebellious creation. We had a relationship with God, folks, but we violated it. And the consequence of that violation, violating God's, God's relationship, that relationship with God, is, is to be eternally lost. And we don't talk about that very often anymore today. People don't like those hellfire and brimstone types of sermons much more today. But that's the reality. We are eternally separated from God. We are eternally separated from God's goodness. All the good things that exist in heaven, we don't get to approach those things. Instead, we're left outside of the city. And the way God paints the picture for us in Revelation is a lake of fire. Doesn't sound like a good place to be. I don't want to be there. I don't think you want to be there either. I don't think anyone wants to be there. But we make those choices that put us in the group that will face those consequences. And so Paul says, look, we were all there. It doesn't matter whether you were a Jew or a Gentile. That's where we were at because we all caved in. But then Paul says, look instead of what God has done for us. And this is the part that is transforming for us. Paul says, verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us. This idea of mercy is not the idea of pity. Right? We can pity folks. Right? And my mind is going back to my 80s movies and Rocky Balboa and Mr. T saying, I pity the fool. You know, uh, we, we, we can pity folks. Right? We feel bad for them. We feel sad for them. We, we pity them. But that's not the idea of Mercy is the idea that you have violated a relationship with someone and they have a right to execute some sort of penalty in the, whatever agreement you had with them. And mercy is the idea that you're choosing not to execute that consequence that by legal right you have a right to do. That's mercy. That's mercy. And Paul says that's what God did for us. He gave us that mercy. That's different from reconciliation. And we've talked about reconciliation, right? Reconciliation, we've talked about in previous uh, lessons, is, is the idea of being brought back into a right relationship with someone. Now, there's different ways we can reconcile, right? One way of reconciling is to say, okay, uh, we'll restore this relationship, but in the meantime, you've got to pay me this money that you owe me. Or you've got to do these things over here. That's reconciliation. Mercy is even deeper than that in the sense that the person that's wrong says, I'm going to forget about it. 
I'm not going to ask for those things back. I'm not going to ask for you to carry out those things that, that ought to be required of you. I'm going to let that go. That is mercy. That's mercy. And that's what God did for us. And Paul says that's how uh, we're able to come back into this relationship with God. And he tells us all of this, verse 4, was motivated out of love. And he says he had that love for us even when we were dead in our transgressions. And he made us alive together with Christ. It's one thing, right? We can look over to this side of the room at the cute little baby that all of you keep you know, smirking at whenever it giggles. And I'm like, why am I preaching this morning? All right? But it's easy to look at a, a baby that's a few weeks or two, three weeks old and, and think, oh, they're so cute together, right? And love that thing, especially when you don't have to get up at 2 o'clock in the morning, right? That's easy. Whew. What if we looked at the teenagers in the room, right? <laughs> you know, that's when it's not so easy, right, uh, to, to love. And we can all think back to our teenage years and think, man, why didn't my dad just, you know, take me out, you know? Uh, he was a packing guy back then, you know. He could have done that easily, you know. Uh, and we think back to those days. <laughs> That's when God loved us. He loved us during those dark times in our lives, when our lives were full of sin. He still loved us then. And he loved us so much that he sent Christ on our behalf. So I want you to look at that again in verse 5. Even though we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ. You know that's a title. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Sometimes we treat it like it's Jesus' last name. We need to remember the idea of Christ is the anointed one. He was coming for a particular purpose, and that particular purpose was to die for my sins and to die for your sins. Paul doesn't say Jesus here. He says the one who came for that purpose, to die for our sins. And we are saved by grace, not something that we deserve, not something that we could cry out for as something that was due to us, but God's desire to save us simply because of his love. That's how God saves us. Not because I deserved it. Not because I was such a great guy that I could say, hey, what are you going to do without me? Because God never needed me, so to speak. But that's how much he loved us. That he was willing to send an anointed one. He was willing to send one appointed for that purpose to save us from our sins. And so Paul says, that's what, that's what he did for us. Motivated out of love. He made us alive with Christ. He has changed our lives. In future ages, uh, we'll be resurrected with Christ. And because of that, we'll be able to have some blessings that we can't even realize. Notice that, verse 6 and 7. So that in the ages to come, verse 7, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You know what I really hate about Christmas? is December 26th, right? You've opened all your presents. You've had all your special snack foods. Sometimes there's extra, but you know what I mean. You've opened up all your presents, and you look around, and you think, well, now what? Right? Kind of a, a little bit of a downer. 
But Paul is telling us that's not the way it is with God. Folks, we can think in our minds and we can erase in our minds all the sins that, that God has forgiven us. But Paul says he's not done yet. Because at some point we get to go to heaven and he's got even more kindness he's going to show me. He has even more grace, even more love that he's going to show me. Have you ever been in a doghouse? I mean, really, in the doghouse. <laughs> and, and you think to yourself, is this person ever going to talk to me again? Right? And then finally, there's that gesture of kindness, and yes, I'm going to talk to you again. You know, may not necessarily be nice things at first, right? Uh, you, you still got some things to work off, buddy, right? But you're just like, yeah. Okay? We think about the sins in our lives and we're really in the doghouse. But that's nothing. We're, we're glad we're out of the doghouse now. We can think to ourselves, I'm out of the doghouse now. But Paul says there's even more kindness. So much kindness that we can't even anticipate it. So much kindness we can't even begin to fathom it. And that's the amazing thing Paul says about what God has done for us. He's given us that. And it's all due to God's grace. It's not us earning back by doing the works of the law. Notice he says, verse 9, not as a result of works. Verse 8 he says, it's a gift from God so that no one can boast. Okay, and so all of this is a gift from God. But then notice what he says. That Christianity is a religion of doing. And this is where the transformation comes. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Now he's just spent the last nine verses talking about where we were and what God has done to bring us out of those things. And then in verse 10, in just one little verse, he says a load of information about how that trans transformation ought to work. He says, for we are his workmanship. He created us in Christ. We are these new creations, these new creatures, he would say in Romans, or in Corinthians, rather, of Christ for good works. Now, the word for means for a purpose. He created us as his workmanship for a purpose. And that purpose is to do good works. Good works that he had prepared for us beforehand that we ought to walk in them. In other words, just as we talked about last week, uh, what is it that God predetermined? Two weeks ago, what is it that God predetermined? Well, he predetermined that we would be in Christ. And another thing that he predetermined is that once we got in Christ, we would be doing good works. He wants us to be serving. He wants us to be doing good things for other people. He has a plan that once we are in Christ, he has called us out of all that darkness, all that crud that we're in because of his grace, because of his kindness, because of his love. And, and, and now as a result of that, something ought to be changed in my life. 
so that not only am I not living for myself, but now I'm living for God. Good works that he's prepared beforehand. In other words, God's goal or purpose is that instead of living for self, I would be walking in the lifestyle of doing good deeds. Folks, Christianity is not a religion based just around developing a value system or adopting a belief system that some say was only negative stuff. It's not even only about what you, you want and, and God will do what you want and God will forgive you later. Seems to be the attitude of some. Rather, it's a transformation of behavior of doing good deeds. Think about how Paul says this in other places. Titus chapter 2, verse 14. We, he created us a position for his own, his own, a people of his own possession, a people zealous for good deeds, Titus 2, 14. Galatians 6, 9 and 10. He says, do not lose heart in, in doing good, but whenever you have an opportunity, do good to all people, especially those of the household of faith. But do good to all people when you have an opportunity. Galatians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. What are good deeds that we can do? It works when you choose to live not in conformity with the world, but in service to God. Rather than make decisions based on indulging self, you make decisions based on what is pleasing to God. Consider what is pleasing to God in every aspect of your life. And so think about how that works. God wants you to be pleasing to Him by loving your spouse. So if you start loving your spouse and treating your spouse with respect and love and dignity and all those things, more than likely you're going to have a better relationship, aren't you? How do you treat your coworkers? Again, if you treat your coworkers with dignity and, and, and respect, more than likely you're going to have a better relationship with your coworkers, right? Now there's always that rascal out there. It doesn't matter what you do, he's still going to be a little rascal, right? You still got to deal with those folks. Uh, but you can certainly make it worse, can't you? By antagonizing, by being disrespectful, by being mean spirited yourself. Okay? Uh, and, and so even that makes it better. What about living ethical lives, avoiding problems in life? As a Christian, you decide that you're going to live by a moral standard. You avoid many of the pitfalls of life. And even how you perceive struggles, perceiving struggles with hope and peace makes life a little bit better. Christianity works when we practice it in life, doing selfless acts of kindness, helping others, improving our community, whether it's something like tutoring, uh, uh, someone that needs help in reading or something else, other things that we can do in our community that, that serve others, uh, helping others grow spiritually, maybe other Christians that are struggling with things, that's an act of service that we can do. It helps them improve their lives. And obviously, we like to think about leading others to Christ, seeing souls that are saved. That's certainly a good deal. But you see, in order for Christianity to work, it needs to be re uh, real. It can't just be a label that you wear. Oh, yes, I'm a Christian, but look at your life. It's a mess. What are you doing? Think, look at the things that you're caught up in. Look at the things that you're doing. needs to be real. If you're a parent and it's not real, your kids will know that. 
I may have told you the story in the past about uh, when I lived in another place and worked with the young people in that particular place. And a dad came to me and, and uh, after his, his son, uh, who was probably a sophomore in high school, was going to be a dad. And uh, we were talking about that. He asked me, well, you know, talked about the TV shows that he watched and the magazines under his bed. That may have an impact on whether or not your kids take you serious in your Christianity. It needs to be real. It needs to be real. It can't just be a label. It must be more than just Sunday morning routine. It's a daily commitment. The good news is you're not alone. There are Christians around you. There are Christians in this room. There are Christians in other places that face the same temptations that you face, that struggle with the same struggles you struggle with, that, that have a desire to maybe do things other than just doing good deeds all the time. And we can encourage each other. And we ought to encourage each other. And we ought to build each other up. Folks, Christianity works. And it works when we let it transform our lives, not just be something that we wear, not just be a title that we put on ourselves, but when we try to practice the things that the Bible teaches us and we put those things into practice, yes, there's still going to be challenges in life. There's still going to be hardships from time to time. But for the most part, it does make our lives better. It does solve the problems in our lives. And it does it when we practice Christianity and we become the workmanship the crafted item that God has fashioned. If you're here this morning and you need to be united with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection through baptism, or you have other needs, I want you to let those be known. Together we stand.